This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. I think it's time to say sorry to him. That's the least the government could do. That is uh, Marie Hannon. I mean, is there a tougher defense attorney in this country than Marie Hannon? Somebody you definitely want on your side. Uh, and I think the government realized what they were up against. Not just a tough lawyer in Marie Hennon, uh, but a pretty flimsy case against uh, Vice Admiral Mark Norman. Uh, this case really, I think, had the potential to actually be much more of an embarrassment to the government and although everybody's insisting that there was no political interference in this decision, the timing does seem interesting. The decision was made today by the prosecutor to not proceed with this case. They've stayed the charge against Vice Admiral Mark Norman. He's a free man and free to return to work in the Canadian military. Now, what has changed? Why do they now believe after having dragged him through all of this? That there's no case here. Well, the short answer is we don't know. This was Prosecutor Barbara Mercier today. The information, I cannot get into the specifics of that information. The defense counsel gave it to us under certain conditions um, for our purposes only. But I will say that um, absorbing it, uh, comparing it to investigative materials, we came to that conclusion. Okay, so essentially then Norman's defense team gave the Crown some new information. This was back in March. They reviewed it, and that led to this decision. Now, this all goes back to a decision to buy supply ships. In particular, a deal that the previous government had signed with Davies Shipbuilding uh, to procure a supply ship. Irving Shipbuilding felt that maybe their offer, their bid, was, was not fairly assessed. The new government came in and put the Davy deal on hold. Somehow that ended up in the media, though. And feels like Mark Norman kind of became the scapegoat, the fall guy for this. What's also interesting is that uh, initially, as he was facing this, this legal ordeal, he was denied the opportunity to have his legal costs covered. And then today, all of a sudden now, we get the announcement from the federal defense minister that indeed they are going to cover his legal fees. I have authorized to pay for uh, for the piece because these, uh, the uh, decision that has been made um, uh, today, they'll have those discussions and the amount will be figured out. So it just feels like this has been a mess right from the get-go. How did it get that way? And how, how did uh, Vice Admiral Mark Norman find himself going through this ordeal? Joining us to talk more about the case is... Brian Platt, uh, National Post Parliament Hill reporter. Brian, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Good afternoon. Obviously, significant development. How, how surprising was this to you? Um, it was a surprise. I didn't, you know, I've been covering this case really since it entered the courts 
system. Norman was charged in March 2018, so the criminal proceeding has now gone on for just over a year. And so I'm surprised. I did not know it was going to get dropped this week the way that it was. But the government's case was not doing well in court for a while. The judge was clearly skeptical of many of the arguments. I should I should clarify. There's the government was making arguments about document disclosure. And then, but also the prosecutors, just on the general merits of the case, I had the feeling for a while that the judge was not was skeptical of many of the arguments that were being presented. And so I didn't know it was going to come this week, but I was starting to feel for a while that Norman's defense team had a lot of momentum behind them. Right. And what, what was their argument, essentially, uh, Mark Norman's defense team? I mean, was it, was it that he had nothing to do with this or that, that perhaps his actions had been uh, unfairly misrepresented? He, they had a whole bunch of defenses that they were bringing forward. There's the you know broad defense that he is being accused of leaking in a town where people leak all the time. Right. And, you know, there's... So the argument that he was just made into a scapegoat by a new government, a Trudeau government was brand new in November 2015 when the most um, the most damaging leak in this case happened from their point of view. And so there's the argument that he was just made into a scapegoat by a new government that was furious over a leak. But they had a lot of other complicated arguments that were going to come out if this thing ever got to trial. And the thing that is most important to remember here is that what the Crown had to prove in order to make this charge stick, which is breach of trust. Mm -hmm. And typically with a breach of trust charge, there has to be some element of personal benefit. And it was never clear in this case what personal benefit Mark Norman ever received. There's no allegation of financial benefit. There's no, you know, uh, allegations of, uh, you know, any other sort of selfish or financial gain or anything like that. And so making this charge stick, I think, was always going to be a very difficult task for the Crown. And people can start to rightfully ask now why this charge is ever laid in the first place. Right. I think we deserve an answer to that. Uh, As you say, I mean, stuff gets leaked all the time in Ottawa. And on something like this, look, the government felt that they needed to review the the Davy contract where they were going to put it on hold. Why, Why is that something that would need to be leaked in the first place? Why aren't they coming out and telling people that? Well, there was, uh, I mean, you know, it's funny. I'm not, a, I'm not typically a, a defense reporter. And so I don't, yeah. I don't usually dig into the details of these procurement things. They're extremely complicated, extremely messy. Mm-hmm. And in the case of a naval procurement like this, there are a couple of cutthroat companies, uh, that have cutthroat competition between them. And so I think you had a lot of that playing out in this case in a complicated way that I don't know if the Crown was totally prepared for. Um, it's how these procurement projects um, typically happen. And I think, you know, you were if the trial went forward, you were going to get into these arguments of, well, were some parts of the Defense Department skeptical of the Davy ship? Were did other parts want it? What, how, what role did the Prime Minister's office play? Under you know, a lot of these decisions were made while Stephen Harper was Prime Minister. I think all of that was going to start to come out in a trial, and I think it was going to get very messy over whether Norman was really working for or against people in government who wanted this ship.
Well, yeah, there were a couple of potential issues with liberals here. I mean, there's been the suggestion that, that Scott Bryson, uh, now former cabinet minister, was maybe a little too cozy with, with the folks at Irving's shipbuilding. I mean, that could have been a potential issue. And then obviously you had Andrew Leslie, who was, uh, well, he's now an outgoing liberal MP, announced recently he wasn't going to run again. And we learned that he was actually going to testify for the defense. He was going to testify on Mark Norman's behalf. Yeah, and we don't know what... Uh, my impression is that Andrew Leslie would have been basically a character witness to say, I've worked with Mark Norman for a long time, and I think that he is a, you know, a distinguished and upstanding guy. Um, whether he had more to say than that is an interesting question, and as with so many things now, the fact that this case has been dropped, there's a lot of tantalizing potential uh, disclosures that might come out in a trial. And as somebody who covered this case for a year now, it is somewhat disappointing to me now that it's, it is very possible we're just never going to get an answer to a lot of these questions about, you know, the defense have been pushing for disclosure on all kinds of issues, including personal communications from the prime minister himself and his top staff and personal communications by other senior leaders in the military. I mean, all of this stuff was potentially going to come out at the trial. And now we may never see what exactly the defense got its hands on. Well, yeah, you're, you're right, and that, that is kind of frustrating. I think Canadians do deserve answers on some of this. Now, maybe part of that depends on, on what Mark Norman himself intends to do. He says he's eager to get back to work, and perhaps that will be his focus going forward. I guess if he feels as though he's really been wronged in all of this, I mean, he might have the option of, of filing a lawsuit against the government. Some of it, some of this stuff might come out in, in that kind of a scenario, but we just don't know at this point, do we? Yeah, they were asked about that today. Both he and his lawyer, Marie Hennon, said that would not comment at all about a lawsuit. And uh, I suppose that's not surprising, given they've just uh, come out of this criminal proceeding. I personally would be shocked if there was no lawsuit. I just think, um, given not only the financial hardship that um, the vice admiral went through, but... You know, he was the second in command of the Canadian military, and his career was essentially destroyed over this. And so, the I, as it, given the allegations they also made during the criminal proceeding that the government was obstructing many of their disclosure requests, I just find it so hard to to believe that this doesn't get to the, the point of a lawsuit. But you saw today uh, that Minister Sejan, the defense minister, has said they'll cover the legal fees of Norman. So. That is certainly the government attempting now to, you know, ward off the civil action here. But they denied Norman's request for financial assistance in 2017. The government rejected, he asked for it, and the government rejected him, basically concluding that they thought he was guilty. So I just, I will be shocked if there's not a lawsuit here. Yeah, so will I. Well, I guess we'll see where it all goes from here. Much more at NationalPost.com. Brian, thanks for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, that's Brian Platt, National uh, Post Parliament Hill reporter, talking about these pretty stunning developments today in the case of Vice Admiral Mark Norman. Canada is very clear about the Northwest Passage being Canadian. Uh, there is both a very strong historic and geographic connection with Canada. That's Ford Affairs Minister Chrystia Freeland responding to her American counterpart, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, this week, uh, stating that Canada's claim over the Northwest Passage is illegitimate. Now, the two did meet this week, 
And they are clearly at odds on this question. But it feels as though this represents maybe a shift in the U.S. perspective on this. And it may well be that the U.S. is asserting its own claims over the Arctic as a way of demonstrating that resolve to Russia, China, and others. So how strong is Canada's claim to the Northwest Passage? How far does our sovereignty extend in the Arctic? And how important is it for us to assert and maintain that sovereignty? And don't we have some some agreements in place or at least some understanding with the United States on all of this? Well, joining us to talk more about it, very pleased to welcome in the program, uh, Adam Lajeunesse, who is uh, Irving Shipbuilding Chair at the Mulready Institute at St. FX, also a fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Adam, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Well, I think a lot of Canadians are under the assumption that it's a very simple answer to the question of who controls the Northwest Passage that, that we do. But is it is it not so clear? Well, we certainly do control the Northwest Passage. Uh, any ship entering that waterway has to abide by our laws and regulations. Nobody goes through there without uh, reporting to us without obeying our environmental protection laws, reporting into the Coast Guard. What's that question here? is isn't so much control, but now it's a question of sovereignty. So that's what Mike Pompeo was talking about in Finland the other day, calling Canadian sovereignty. The fact that we define that waterway as what's called a historic internal waterway, which means that it is as Canadian as the Bow River. We have all the same rights over the Northwest Passage as we would to any other internal waterway. That's what Mike Pompeo is challenging. So does this represent a change at all in in American perspective, or has this been their position all along? Well, it actually doesn't represent a change. So the fact the State Department is coming out and saying, we disagree with Canada on this political legal level is actually the least shocking thing about this whole uh, uh, this whole uh, issue here. Uh, Obama did that. George W. Bush did that. Uh, Nixon, Reagan, most American presidents have released an Arctic policy or have publicly stated that they disagree with the Canadian position. Now, what's really different here? Two things. Uh, the first is the level of aggression that Pompeo is showing going after Canada for reasons that Nobody nobody really understands. Uh, I haven't met anyone yet who, who really has a good idea as to why he decided to pick a fight with Canada. And the second thing that the United States has actually never done is um, try and move this dispute out of the back room, diplomatic sort of conversation, and into the public. Now, the United States has never wanted to pick this fight before. We've always existed, we've always managed this on what's called a sort of an agree to disagree. You know, we both know that we don't agree on the legal status of the Northwest Passage, but why would we fight about it? We know we're not going to resolve this, so let's not damage the bilateral relationship. Let's agree to disagree. Mm -hmm. So why the Americans are shifting away from that and deciding to actually aggressively pick this fight, I'm not quite sure what the motivation is. Would it make sense that this is some kind of a a signal to to the Russians or the Chinese that, look, we'll we'll challenge our friend uh, over this. We'll we'll certainly challenge you over this, too. Well, that might be. And in fact, when Pompeo called Canadian sovereignty illegitimate, it was within the context of actually challenging Russian sovereignty over the Russian 
the equivalent of the Northwest Passage, the Northeast Passage, what the Russians call the Northern Sea Route. So that might be political messaging. And of course, the Americans have been undertaking freedom of navigation voyages, challenging uh, Chinese sovereignty to the South China Sea. Now, there's a difference there that Chinese claim to the South China Sea is quite frankly absurd and has no basis in international law, very different from the Canadian claim to the Northwest Passage. But it might be a useful message using Canada as this way of showing the rest of the world that America is not going to pick favorites. Just over 30 years ago, 1988, we came up with something called the Arctic Cooperation Agreement between Canada and the U.S. So, so what, what is relevant about that in this context? Well, it seems to be that the Arctic Cooperation Agreement is still very much in place. Now, that agreement, to, to simplify it, basically says the Americans will ask permission to come into the Northwest Passage, and Canada will say yes. It's a, it's a functional agreement whereby both sides agree to disagree on the legal questions surrounding Arctic sovereignty and whether or not the Northwest Passage is an international strait that the Americans can use or not. They put all that legal stuff aside. They spent two or three years negotiating. They realized they weren't going to solve it. They put it aside and said, let's agree to disagree. We will request permission to come in. You will say yes, and we will agree that this has nothing to do with our legal positions, and we reserve those into the future. So that remains in place, uh, but that may change this summer. And what's a lot more interesting than the fact that Pompeo comes out and says Canadian sovereignty is illegitimate is what the U.S. Navy is saying behind the scenes, or I shouldn't say behind the scenes, but much more quietly. So over the past year or so, dating back to about December of 2018, the American Navy and the Secretary of the Navy, a guy named Spencer, has been hinting and stating with increasing certainty that the U.S. Navy is going to start undertaking freedom of navigation voyages into the Arctic. Now, for a while, it was a little unclear as to what he meant by the Arctic, when you're talking about the Canadian or the Russian North, but just a week before Pompeo's statement, he made it very clear, yes, this is the Canadian Arctic. And so now, that Arctic Cooperation Agreement looks like it might be tossed out if the Americans undertake the freedom of navigation voyage, the kind of thing that they're doing in the South China Sea right now, well, that would nullify that 88 agreement and lead to what would probably be one of the biggest and most dramatic breaks in Canadian-American relations that we've seen since, well, Cretchen decided not to go to Iraq. So what would Canada's response likely be then uh, in, in a situation like that? Well, unfortunately, there isn't a clear-cut response. A freedom navigation voyage isn't something that we could stop. Uh, it's not something we'd really want to stop, right. in a sense. The Americans send a warship or maybe an icebreaker through the Northwest Passage. And there's no ice anymore in August. You could do either. Um, Canada's not going to board that ship. We're not going to want to uh, <laughs> escalate that conflict, so we're not going to put special forces onto an American icebreaker. <laughs> And so there's no obvious response. We're going to protest it, naturally. We're going to shadow that vessel with an icebreaker of our own or perhaps even the new Arctic offshore patrol vessels. First one's in the water right now. So we'll do that. But I think the answer is going to be a very long-term legal diplomatic slog with foreign affairs trying to win support 
not just in Canada, but of course in the United States as well, trying to convince the Americans, the environmentalists, even security agencies, that this just isn't in their interest, that it's counterproductive to challenge Canada in an area of increasing strategic importance. What's interesting that we, we feel as though maybe compared to the U.S., we're, we're a bit of a minnow here, but you made the point recently, um, Policy Options Magazine, that even though a fight with the U.S. over the Northwest Passage is good for no one, it's one that Canada could win. How, how could we prevail here? Well, you know, when Trudeau the Elder was in power, <laughs> you go back several decades, uh, he actually handled a similar crisis pretty well, and he managed it by working within the United States to try and convince the Americans that our position was right. And he actually did a fairly good job. And he did that by focusing not so much on questions of sovereignty, but on questions of environmental protection. And of course, we could do the very much, uh, very much the same thing today. Uh, the, the American environmental lobby is quite powerful. Try and convince internal actors within the U.S. that making the Northwest Passage an international strait is actually quite dangerous and quite damaging to a fragile ecological region. Likewise, convince the American security community that this is counterproductive. If the Arctic is going to be a strategic region, then the U.S. Navy and Air Force, they're going to need Canadian assistance. They're going to need Canadian participation to develop and evolve NORAD, to use Canadian facilities, Canadian logistical support to hunt for Chinese submarines or Russian submarines, if it ever comes down to that. Try and convince the Americans that what they're doing is self-defeating. It actually worked in 1969, 1970. I think it might work again. Uh, we may be about to find out. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Adam, we'll see where this all goes from here. Appreciate your insight uh, on these questions. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. Uh, Adam uh, Lajeunesse with the Maroney Institute at St. FX University, also a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Uh, His thoughts on on maybe where this is all going from here. Oh, it's time for my favorite radio program. (laughs) I think... Yeah, that was, I mean, that's just a good funk song right there, but also a helpful way of learning how to count to 12. That was one of the, the classic Sesame Street uh, animation features over the years. Uh, and they've had many. I mean, it's, it's so much of Sesame Street that is instantly recognizable. Some of the songs, obviously, the Muppets, the characters, the actors, it's, it's iconic. And, and everybody knows Sesame Street, right? And, and it's instantly recognizable. These characters, these images, these actors, people know it. And people love it. And people have fond memories. I mean, I have childhood memories of watching Sesame Street. And obviously, I have much more recent memories of my own kids watching and appreciating Sesame Street. 
it's really become an institution, and it's an institution that is marking a pretty significant milestone. It's been 50 years since Sesame Street first debuted, back in 1969. And it really did kind of change the way people thought about children's television, or what children's television could be. Right? Certainly there had been children's television programs, but they were mostly more aimed at just straight entertaining. Could a show be entertaining to kids, but also be educational? And is it important to have media that is educational? I mean, we can't rely on television and television alone to educate our kids. And certainly, I think there's a lot more awareness these days about, you know, trying to limit the amount of screen time kids get. And in this environment of iPads and smartphones, it's become a lot more challenging. Joining us for some thoughts on the impact and the legacy of Sesame Street and the value of educational television program. Uh, Very pleased to welcome the program, Catherine Smay-Karsten, Associate Professor, Bachelor of Child Studies Program at Mount Royal University. Catherine, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. In terms of the the impact of a show like this, and and you know, changing our perception of of what television can be for children. I mean, how much of an impact did Sesame Street have in your view? Certainly, over the past years, it has had a really large impact in regards to um, children's learning. Um, many of uh, the studies that have come out around um, the benefits of, Se- of Sesame Street would indicate that there's impact in their cognitive outcomes, so they're learning uh, around literacy and numeracy, so the ABCs, the one, two, threes, um, and also learning about the world. And so from this perspective, this is where children are learning about um, safety knowledge, perhaps social reasoning, and somewhat attitudes to around um, the variety of diverse populations. Right, and, and obviously that was the goal of, of this program, and certainly there have been te- children's television shows prior to that, but, you know, the idea of, you know, giving kids something they're going to want to watch, but also structuring it in a way that they're going to take something from it, they're going to learn something from it, that this experience of sitting in front of the television can maybe produce something of value, was that a real big change in thinking? Um, I think at the time that it was when it was developed, certainly um, there was very little in the form of uh, broadcasting for children, and certainly that's why PBS got involved. And there were a number of people who were um, sitting on their development board in looking at what the outcomes would be for young children, etc. I think as we've moved forward in time, we've also learned more um, about a greater understanding about the impact of television and yeah. screen time with young children. So I think there's some of those pieces as well that we have to keep in mind. Um, Sesame Street was, is, is being broadcast across uh, around the world to um, you know low-income countries, high-income countries, etc. And we do see both low- and middle-income countries and also high-income high having um, uh, you know, good understanding to early childhood interventions and you know, referring to Sesame Street from that perspective. Right, which is an important point, and I think it was seen as, as kind of an equalizer that, uh, you know, for, for all classes, all socioeconomic classes, that there was an opportunity to at least try to build some kind of foundation going into the school years where perhaps there maybe been some, some inequality on that front. How important then, you know, was that, that void that was being filled in, in giving younger kids, maybe from more economically disadvantaged backgrounds, some kind of a, a foundation? 
probably has been beneficial and that television has been a form of early learning. But we also have to remember that it's not typically recommended, particularly in Canada, um, to learn from that perspective. We really want to see children engaged with child-led activities and adult-guided learning opportunities. So it doesn't necessarily replace good early learning. I think what it can do is supplement, but we know that we have to be wise about the amount of time. It has a very different, it has a very um, interactive delivery, very engaging for the children from the conversations with characters, um, the use of animation, etc. The the one concern is that it changes so rapidly, and so for the younger learners, that might be more difficult for them um, to be able to grasp grasp that information and we have to be cautious that just because children are rote memorizing some of the academics like or memorizing the abcs and one two three or one two threes that they don't really understand the concepts of those terms they can say one two three but they don't really understand what that means yeah and so there's there's a need for you know, more follow-up, really, essentially, that, that this yeah. does not replace yeah. that, that kind of learning, that, that early childhood yeah. development, yeah. Right, exactly, but it does supplement from that perspective. Um, when the program started, it was a bit shorter, and I believe now it's an hour long, and for some children that might be too long, so parents might want to, um, you know, look at or perhaps just show clips of that to their children and not the whole time, ensuring that they're getting lots of opportunity for play as well to supplement the learning that's happening on Sesame Street. Right. And, you know, certainly since Sesame Street launched, there have been a lot of imitators and there's been a whole industry almost of, of children's television that, that's meant to have some kind of an educational bent or, or meant to teach children something. Uh, so it certainly became a trend. But as you say, I mean, there, there's probably a limit to, to the value of that. And there's also the danger then that, you know, parents assume that this is all good and, and maybe kids are getting more screen time than they should. Exactly. You know, there's been a number of studies that indicate that television, the more television that children watch before the age of three, the more likely they are to have attention problems by the time they start school. So I think we have to be very cautious um, when we're choosing um, that type of entertainment for children. Well, some important points. Uh, Professor, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Really appreciate your, uh, appreciate your insight on this, and uh, thanks so much for joining us here. It was my pleasure. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. That's uh, Catherine Smith-Karsten, uh, professor at Mount Royal University. Uh, some years ago, in fact, this would have been, I, I think, about a decade ago, right around the time Sesame Street was marking its 40th anniversary. Roscoe Orman was in town. Roscoe Orman. Not, and he wasn't there from the very beginning. I think it was the early 70s when he joined the cast as Gordon on Sesame Street and has been in that role ever since. Uh, he was in town, had an opportunity to to talk to him, which to me was quite a treat, honestly. I mean, this is someone I remembered watching as a kid on Sesame Street, and then someone is, is still there. My kids are watching on Sesame Street. But the opportunity to talk to Roscoe Orman, just about you know what it's meant to him to have been a part of that franchise and such an important part uh, of the lives of so many kids around the world. And, and why the show has, has managed to endure over all of these decades. Here's a bit of that conversation. There's no way I imagine. As a matter of fact, to be honest, I, I um, uh, was praying that I would be able to keep the job for a year or two. Is that right? Uh, you know, if you're an actor in the acting profession, any, any job that lasts for more than a few months is considered uh, almost uh, you know, unheard of. Yeah, no kidding. So, you know, to be with the, with the show for a few years and then to go beyond... That and uh, now that I'm celebrating my 34th season this year, uh, 
it's pretty amazing. Well, what do you think is the reason or reasons for that? Well, I think there there are several reasons. Um, uh, one, one of which has to do with the the, the seriousness of its mission, the fact that it, it, it it's taken that um, uh, that goal and that mission uh, very seriously as far as educating uh, and paying attention to the needs of young children as they prepare for school, and uh, so it, it's very heavily researched and developed for that purpose, uh, probably more so than any other television show in history. It has a component of uh, re- researchers and and uh, uh, educators and psychologists who um, who formulate the uh, curriculum goals. And then, you know, the extreme good fortune to have had um, people like uh, Jim Henson, John Stone, and all, uh, the, the early... Um, contributors uh, to the show creatively, and of course we have a wonderful cast, most of whom are still with the show after, uh, which actually, actually we have two cast members, uh, Bob McGrath and Loretta Long, uh, who were still with the show from its original uh, broadcast in 1969. So uh, just an, ex- an extraordinary uh, example of, you know, probably the best that television has to offer, especially for young and how would you describe the the role of the cast? I mean, I, you know, I, obviously in the technical sense, you're you're actors, but but I mm-hmm. suspect that that the Gordon we see on TV is in some ways a a manifestation of of who you are and your own personality. Uh, and, and given the the intent and the purpose of the show, I mean, you know, to to call you guys merely actors would would I think mm-hmm. downplay a, a lot of what you guys do. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely uh, is is uh, far removed from. Um, any other acting assignment I've ever had. It, it's more than just uh, playing a role. Uh, the characters that we that we have evolved uh, as our own on the show are pretty much based, at least in terms of the basic personalities, on our own uh, personas, uh, much more so in my case than any other thing. I've, I've done a wide range of roles in theater, television, and film. Nothing that is that comes as close to being who I am as Des Gordon. Uh, you know, yeah, although, yeah. you know, uh, we're not exactly the same. I mean, obviously, I don't live <laughs> sure. on a place like Sesame Street with, <laughs> with seven-foot yellow birds. No, really. And grouches living in a trash can and that kind of thing. But it's, <laughs> it's just a wonderful uh, opportunity to really connect um, to um, the best in, and I think, each of us in terms of being role models, teachers, parental figures, uh, uh, you know, uh, the people who, who relate to children and, and children in a way that's, that's, that's uh, nurturing and um, uh, supportive, you know, for, for their needs. Yeah. And entertaining as well. I, I, I've, I've had the chance to do some, some pretty humorous uh, uh, segments on the show with a wide range of, of talent, including our, our cast members. There you go. Some interesting thoughts from Roscoe Orman, who plays Gordon on Sesame Street, on what it's meant to him to have been a part of all of it and why it's lasted as long as it has. Interesting piece, uh, Advice Canada, looking at, at a, a figure who became fairly prominent on, on you know, the far right scene. Someone who uh, became notorious uh, as a leader of the Heritage Front uh, and so fairly influential in the white supremacist and neo-Nazi movement. And, and these individuals do exist. And we've been hearing more lately about some of these individuals and these groups. I mean, the, the other side of it, though, is 
whatever it is that they're doing that we hear about, you know, engaging in, in protests or doing other more nefarious things, perhaps, they do still have lives. And for a lot of them, they do still have nine to five jobs that they go to. So it raises an interesting question, I guess, that does somebody who espouses spouse's views like this, I mean, do they still have a right to earn a living? And do their employers maybe have a right to know what it is they're engaged in? Look, if somebody is good at their job and they're not causing any trouble on the work site, maybe it doesn't matter or it shouldn't matter. But at the same time, what about people who work in that environment? Do you have a right to know? If you're, say, Jewish and your workplace employs uh, a notorious and vehement anti-Semite, you have a right to know about that? Does that maybe make your workplace and what you're going to every day uncomfortable or maybe even dangerous? So a lot of interesting questions this raises. So this is an investigation into a guy named Mark Lemire, and you might remember him as well. He was at the center of a fairly high-profile court case regarding the legislation around Canadian, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. So it was a fairly prominent free speech case. Mark Lemire has apparently been working in the IT department of the city of Hamilton for over a decade. One former city councilor who is black says that he feels he was put in danger by Mark Lemire's employment. Joining us to talk about his scoop is Mac Lamarou, senior reporter with Vice Canada, Vice.com. Mac, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Rob. Thanks for having me. Um, so, yeah, as I mentioned, Mark Lemire has been fairly influential uh, on the far right, uh, and he was at the center of this, this high-profile court case. What else do we need to know about this guy, though? So, Mark Lemire, he's one of Canada's probably most influential racists of the last 25 years. Uh, he was the leader of the Heritage Front, the last leader from about 2000 to 2005 uh, when it died. Uh, and the Heritage Front, if you're not familiar with it, was this group of neo-Nazis. Um, it's got a long, weird history of one of the founders was a CSIS agent. Right. But um, it was what the government described as Canada's most prominent white supremacist organization in the 90s. And Pretty much what one anti-racist researcher told me, um, the most influential, important group uh, within racism in Canada since the Klan of the 30s. So he was the final leader of that. And then on top of that, he was also a groundbreaker in regards to kind of leading the Canadian and North American far right onto the Internet. He was one of the first to actually get them online. Um, Think of Stormfront. He was just a little after that. Uh, by creating kind of online message boards in the 90s for white supremacists uh, and sites that they were able to share their propaganda. And then, as you mentioned, he got into kind of a prorated, a prorated fight with the CHRC. But he's was what was described to me as one of the more influential and high-profile racists of the last 25 years within Canada. Uh, and, and he's tight with a few others. Uh, Paul Fromm mm-hmm. is a name people might know. In fact, yeah. Paul Fromm has has appeared at, at rallies here in Calgary alongside the notorious uh, Aryan Guard. Paul Fromm is a pretty well-known and notorious neo-Nazi himself. Yeah, it's the far right within Canada, especially in this kind of waning period within the 2000s, was a small group kind of keeping it going. And now, yeah, as you know, Paul from kind of mentored the Aryan Brotherhood and the uh, Blood and Honor, which kind of grew from there. So he, all of those figures that you're going to think of, they all kind of intermix and they all kind of pat each other on the back. Uh, they all tried to kind of turn themselves into free speech martyrs, you would say, mm-hmm. um, through all these fights with Richard Warman and the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. 
All right. So, I mean, in the meantime, you know, these mm-hmm. people do have day jobs, I, yeah. <laughs> I guess. We, we kind of overlook that that aspect of their lives. So, uh, Paul, or rather, Mark Lemire, who we're talking about here. Now, mm-hmm. so you made the, the discovery that he's been working for the city of Hamilton for a number of years. He's been working. Uh, so, essentially, what my story outlines is that Mark Lemire was, uh, what one source told me, uh, was hired in 2005, which is when he was actually still the leader of the Heritage Front. Uh, and he's been working as a network analyst for the city of Hamilton since then uh, and is still currently an employee there unless, um, you know, they got rid of him regarding this piece, but the city of Hamilton won't talk to me. Um, so the thing that's really interesting here, um, as we're going to be discussing in regards to these people, of course they need to live their lives, is that he had access, back access, to a lot of the private information of city employees and that's kind of where you might draw the line in regards to whether it should be known that this guy is an open white nationalist white supremacist right do, do, mm-hmm. what do we know about whether the city of hamilton knew about this or knew the extent of this well the city of hamilton won't speak to me they're saying that this is essentially uh, hr matter and they won't talk in regards to their employees personal lives and their beliefs, which is actually, you know, what a pretty fair point. Um, but so what I do know, and take from this what you will, is that there was a lot of weird things around Mark Lemire's employment. Um, when I called him, unlike most people who their answering machine would be their name and their title, it was just his extension number. Um, he was kept off, you know, email directories and automated phone lines. Um, and some people have said that they've actually stopped issuing work charts because he was there. Uh, all, that was just a source telling me that. So it sounds like some people may have known about him and his background. But again, they're not commenting on it. So I can't say definitively what was known. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Matthew Green, we mentioned his name. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. how, did, how does he fit into this story? So Matthew Green was Hamilton's first ever uh, person of color elected to the city council there. Uh, He actually just quit, so he's very recent, just quit to run in the federal election for the NDP. Um, And he kind of ran on a social justice campaign. He is everything that the Heritage Front essentially would have hated back in their heyday. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he, he worked in a capacity as a city councilor where people would come to him as whistleblowers and they would come to him through his email, and he had a lot of sensitive information, is, is the term that I will use, uh, within, you know, things that you think are going to be kept private. Uh, but when you have somebody that has ties to white supremacist organization and neo-Nazis, having back access to a person of color, a city councilor, who's trying to, um, you know, attack systematic racism within Hamilton, I would be nervous if I was him as well, in regards to if maybe this guy took a look at what was there. Yeah, and that's that's the dilemma here, because you see yeah. the, the, where there's the potential for that kind of abuse. Mm-hmm. But if he was, you know, if he was willing to be uh, on his best behavior at work and not yeah. engage in any of that, is there cause to fire him? I, I think the best thing for this is that we have to leave it up to the city of Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Um, it's such a interesting and huge question of do we want to start firing people for their political beliefs um i think it also has to be kind of a case-by-case basis um in regards to this lemire did have access to sensitive data he's never he hasn't been active for some years but he's never essentially recanted his beliefs he's never 
apologize for what he's done and kind of what he spouted out there. Um, so as far as we know, he still holds them. And it's, yeah, it's such an interesting question. I would, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of torn on that because, like, I mean, I think people have a right to, to earn a living. And if they're, mm-hmm. they're not causing problems on, on the job site, if they're able to competently do their job, um, you know, maybe they should be able to. I think at the same time, though, mm-hmm. employers have some rights, too. And if they don't want to associate with somebody and, and their views, I, I think they should be free to exercise that right. If, if an organization doesn't want a, a notorious white supremacist working for them, I mean, is, that's their decision, too. So I, I see both sides of that. And also, I mean, there's the question of somebody who's forced to work in that environment, uh, right? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. someone who's a visible minority having to work next to Mark Lemire every single day. Don't they deserve to know? And what kind of a situation does it put them in? Yeah, and I've had actually people from the city of Hamilton reaching out to me today being... This is how they learned about this. And this is not the way you want to learn about this. You don't want to learn about it in a 2,000-word article in Vice, kind of being like your coworker is a neo-Nazi. Um, and it's, it, it does feel unfair to them, but it, it, do we want to start, you know, legislating what people believe is a very big question, and it's a very difficult one. Um, I think right now it's going to be interesting to see how the city of Hamilton um, response to this. And, and I do really want to say I have no evidence that Mark Lemire used his data for any sort of nefarious purposes. Right. I, I would just like, like to reiterate that. Yeah. Um, and, but one thing I can say is I tried to contact him on the day we published. So I tried to contact him today and his extension wasn't, uh, wasn't there. His email was still working, but his, his extension was down. So, I have no idea what the city is going to do, and they're not commenting on it, but it's going to be interesting to watch. Well, they may have to at some point now that it's mm-hmm. out there. Uh, Moreadvice.com. Mac, always appreciate it. Thanks for making some time for us here. Yeah, always fun to talk to you. All right, likewise. Take care. Mac Lamaru, senior reporter with Vice Canada. Uh, some interesting updates on uh, someone who, who had kind of faded into the background, but for a while was a pretty notorious figure on the um, far right, the white nationalist and supremacist scene in Canada. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge, and you can email me rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.